Acts chapter 2 and from verse 39. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Last week we considered how baptism is to be administered. What is the mode of baptism? We noted then, thinking of that, the meaning of the word baptize, there's a range of meanings in the original Greek language for that word, and it is not confined only to dipping or immersing. We can show that from Scripture. We also noted that the element that is used in baptism, of course, is water. And that water in outward baptism, in water baptism, is representing the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore he, the Spirit, is more properly represented by the active pouring or sprinkling of the water rather than the more passive use of water as that element into which you dip the person being baptized in a bath or in a pool or some sort of font. We come now to the second major area of controversy. Not so much how do we do this, but who is it for? And in many ways, I would say this is the defining difference between ourselves and Baptists. More so than the mode, I feel that this area of who is to be baptized is a more substantive difference. Although I suspect that for many Baptists, it is the mode rather than the person that actually uh, is at the crux and core of their understanding of baptism. That to a Baptist would probably be the major difference. But to us, I feel this area is a bigger deal. And I say this because many, if not most Baptists, can well understand the desire of a, of a Presbyterian pedo-Baptist to see their children committed to the Lord. And they don't object to that in any way necessarily. And to see even that child embraced in covenant promises, they can understand, even if they don't agree with theology, they can understand the desire and the hope and the intention of parents so bringing their children before the Lord. And I think this is why you often hear of dedication services within Baptist churches, where the parents will bring their children to dedicate them to the Lord. Uh, and it is, in many ways, not that dissimilar to our baptism service, obviously without um, water applied or administered and without seeing it uh, theologically in the same sense. But practically, in terms of what you would witness, it's not all that distinct. And to go on a little bit of a tangent, in many ways you see a similar thing when you have Baptists and independent groups forming themselves into Baptist unions and so on, that is not all that dissimilar from our presbytery uh, structures. That's a whole other area of discussion. So we need to tackle this matter. Who is baptism for? Can it be legitimate to give a sign and seal of the covenant of grace? The spiritual covenant of grace to children that's the core of the question can that be legitimate children who do not indeed who cannot make any personal profession of faith in christ for themselves in their infancy sometimes just days old a few weeks old a few months old how can they say that they have been washed that's the major difference that defines a Baptist from a pedo-Baptist. But we have also have to have a further uh, nuanced, if you like, discussion. And in many ways, this is one that perhaps for many of you here troubles us more within the bounds of our own denomination and congregation and even uh, church community in the islands. And the question is this. Okay, children should be baptized, but which children? Whose children? Is it to be children of believers only? 
Is it to be children of members only? Is it to be children of adherents? Or is it to be any children? Which children are to be baptized? So we need to look at this area. Who is baptism for? And this debate as an area of contention, this has been going since at least the time of the Reformation. The early Baptists were called Anabaptists because they rebaptized. That's what that prefix, the Anna, means, the rebaptizers. They thought that uh, the Reformers, we are more familiar with men like Calvin and Knox and Luther, that they didn't go far enough. That they didn't properly shake off the shackles of Rome and that infant baptism was a kind of legacy, a remnant without scriptural warrant, brought in by the Church of Rome. And that to be really and truly reformed, you had to shake that off altogether. And many godly men and many faithful men have been and are Baptists. In the Puritan era in England, you had a man called John Gill, who was a fervent Baptist and has written an excellent commentary and would be worthwhile if you haven't got a copy trying to procure a copy of John Gill's commentary. Moving into the 1800s, you had a man like Spurgeon, who we're all very familiar with, who heard his name and quotes often. In our own contemporary period, we have a man who we greatly respect, Malcolm Watts in Salisbury, who holds to a strongly Baptist position. And we also have to acknowledge that for years, in many places, when the, when the Iron Curtain was still there, uh, in the uh, Eastern Europe and in the USSR, to be an evangelical Christian was almost uh, completely synonymous with being a Baptist. Other denominations sold out or capitulated or disappeared altogether. It was mostly the Baptists who maintained something of evangelical fervor in the most trying circumstances under communist dictatorships. So there are good men, fine men, whom we disagree with here, but we cannot, of course, take our theology and our doctrine and our practice from even the best of men, but from the best of books. And so, to preempt things a little bit, but our answer to the question, who is to be baptised, is in two areas. First of all, adults are to be baptized, male and female adults, who are making profession of faith in Christ for the first time. They are to be baptized, if they haven't already been so. And not to be rebaptized, but before they would sit at the Lord's Supper, they are to be baptized. So adults are to be baptized. And then secondly, children of those adults who are within the visible church of Christ upon the earth. They are also bound to be baptized. But only those children of parents who are themselves within the visible church. So it is not to be administered to any children and everyone's children. It is not to be confined to adults. It is adults and their children of those who are themselves within the visible church. We want to try to go through that position in our different headings. First of all then, adults professing faith in Christ should be baptised. Adults professing faith in Christ should be baptised. There are very few Christians who dispute that. There are a few, we mentioned before, parachurch groups who kind of ignore baptism. There are a number of churches who, not officially but in practice, have almost ignored baptism. Sadly, uh, and slightly unusually, the Ulster Free Presbyterian Church is one such denomination. They have an open policy on baptism, so you can be Baptist or pedo-Baptist within the Ulster FPs, and it means that Nobody really preaches on it, and therefore people tend 
not to see the importance of being baptized. And it's even come to the sort of slightly strange position where um, men can be in office, deacons and elders, and never have been baptized. And nobody thinks to ask or to chase or to find out why that is the case. So we see there are very few Christians who dispute that. But sadly, because of just doctrinal sheer chaos and confusion of our day, increasingly there are those who at least, if not disputed, would ignore it. But adults who profess faith ought to be baptized. They should be. It is not merely an option. It is a responsibility. Now, how do we know that baptism is required? Well, we know it because of the Great Commission, of course, and uh, the end of Matthew's account. It is not there as a mere decoration or as a bit of um, filler around the Great Commission, but it is go therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It is the command of Christ. And you cannot take that part out without taking away in the same breath the command to teach all nations, to go therefore into the world and to tell the gospel. So baptism is fundamental in the way Christ commissioned his church to go out with the gospel. And therefore, people ought to be baptized. So adults professing faith ought to be baptized by the command of Christ. But we can see here in Acts chapter 2, we can also say adults professing faith in Christ ought to be baptized by the ex exhortation of the apostles. In our text here in verse 39, the promise is unto you and to your children. Repent ye, verse 38, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So, the apostles themselves are urging people. They are taking the baton, as it were. Handed to them by Christ. And they are running with it. They are not dropping it. They are not ignoring baptism. Well the real thing is to get out the message of the gospel. Which of course fundamentally it is. But they didn't neglect baptism. In the fervor and excitement of that day of Pentecost. When the spirit has been poured out upon the church. They didn't neglect to tell people you've got to be baptized. And they did that because baptism is an outward Mark of belonging to Christ's church. And they weren't ex uh, asking people to leave it as an inward thing, but to show it and profess it openly and outwardly. So it was by the command of Christ, it was by the exhortation of the apostles. We could also say it was by the example of early Christians. This is to be done in Acts chapter 8, a few chapters forward. And uh, verse 36. The early Christians took it upon themselves in professing faith to seek out baptism. And they went on their way and they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What doth hinder me? To be baptized. He is now seeking baptism for himself. He is now desiring to be formally admitted into the church of Christ. To be recognized as one of Christ's followers. And then, not only is it so, there, this Ethiopian eunuch, as an isolated example, but a few chapters further on in chapter 10. And from verse 44. When... Uh, Peter is preaching Christ to Cornelius and his household. While Peter spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them all, which heard the, on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost, as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. It was a natural follow-on uh, in the example of the Gentiles, as well as the Jews. It wasn't even this sort of Jewish transitional thing. 
that is to fall away. Here is the Spirit falling upon the Gentiles in a manner that reminds the Apostle of the day of Pentecost. And he refuses to see them denied the outward sign. Indeed, he insists upon them being marked with the same outward sign of baptism, of water baptism. So there's a great breadth to baptism, but it is not for every adult or any adult. It is a sacrament of the church. It is a gift of Christ, an ordinance of Christ given to his church. It is a sign and seal of union with Christ, which a person is to profess. Baptism must be permitted in these circumstances. It is not for the church to withhold it, or the church then is acting contrary to the command of Christ and is taking to herself a role she does not have. She is administrative. She is there to administer the governance that Christ has established in his word. And he has established that those who are brought into saving faith with himself, union with himself and who desire to make that public profession, they are to be baptized. Now, we don't see the kind of evidence that was there in Acts uh, chapter 10 in Cornelius' household of the Holy Spirit falling upon us or upon those who are new converts. We are required to look for the fruit of the Spirit in the life and to consider their uh, heart and their profession and their walk, to look for an uncontradicted and sustained and credible profession of Christ. But the restriction is clear enough Baptism was never hinted at, never suggested as something that was done widespread to anyone who was willing to be baptized. Let's get them all baptized. Let's get them all under the water. No, only those who could credibly claim to be baptized with the Spirit may apply to receive the baptism of water by the church for themselves. Now this has applications for us today. Unless an adult is then coming forward and saying, I've been saved. I am now washed of my sins. They have no right to baptism for themselves. An unbaptized adult comes and starts coming to church, likes what they hear, agrees with the principles. They have to say, I've not been saved. They cannot receive and must not and ought not receive baptism in that condition. This has happened. I know of a case uh, when I was growing up myself in Stormy of a man who um, he himself had never been baptized. And he had a, their first daughter and he wanted the child to be brought up within the church and to have the benefits of a Christian upbringing in that sense that he himself had not had. But he had never been baptized and he wasn't converted. But he applied for baptism himself so that he then, in his own way, well, have I been baptized, I can have my child baptized. And the church granted that, and I think they were completely wrong to do so. The man was not professing to be a Christian and still to this day does not profess to be a Christian. And there's no warrant in scripture for that breadth for baptism. So we believe and are bound to practice that adults are refused baptism unless they are making a profession and a credible profession of faith. But then they are to be granted. It is indeed their responsibility. It's not enough to say, well, they can seek baptism. We need to say it like this, they should. It is a privilege. Baptism is an immense privilege, but it is more than a privilege. It is the duty of those who have been inwardly washed by the Spirit and baptized by the hand of Christ to acknowledge that in an open way. It is not right for them to hide their light under a bushel. They are to put it upon the top of a hill that men might see their light. And so those who have been baptized by the Spirit, by the hand of Christ, they are to seek for the church to acknowledge that openly by baptizing them with water. It is wrong to hide the truth, to deny it even, by avoiding water baptism. I 
But what we are not saying here, though we say they should, when someone is converted who was never baptised in their infancy, they're not now coming and saying, right, I want to be baptised now, now I am worthy of it. There's no sense of that. Neither are saying, well, now I have uh, the ability to do this, so now on that basis of my ability, I will come forward. It is never about ability in that case. It is about responsibility. And there's a big difference. Adults who are not themselves washed of the Spirit... They have responsibility to believe in Christ. But they have no responsibility, apart from believing in Christ, to be baptised. But those who are united to Christ, they have a responsibility. However feeble their efforts might be, and however weak they might feel themselves to be, or lacking an ability to maintain a profession or to... Uh, be associated outwardly with the church, afraid of what that might bring, dishonor that it might cause, they have a responsibility. It is not about how able are they. It is about their union with Christ. So, adults are to be baptized on professional faith. Secondly, not only adults, but children have a right to baptism too. We assert that children may also be baptised. Now, some of the objections to this we've already considered in the earlier parts of our study, which is why we deliberately set that groundwork. We looked at the unity of the church between Old and New Testament, and we looked at baptism as the successor and replace, replacement for circumcision. But there are still those who object to the idea of children being baptised. They might say, for example, well, baptism is about union with Christ. And we agree, that is its meaning. We've spoken about it in these terms. So how then can you baptise infants? You have no way of knowing if they're united to Christ or not. Well, as an initial point, at least, we would say this. There is nothing impossible about a child or infant being united to Christ. A child or infant very well may be, and can be, and has been united to Christ. There are Nazarites from the womb. And even if not necessarily from the womb, there are some very tender converts, tender of age, who in later years can speak about the Lord's mercy to them, three, four, five, six, seven, ten, whatever it might be. There is nothing then in the meaning of baptism. Baptism is about union with Christ, we know that. There's nothing in the meaning of that that is fundamentally inappropriate for children who may be united to Christ and can be united to Christ. Now that is very, very far from saying that we have some idea or imagine in our head when we baptise someone that everyone who is baptised and their children are now united to Christ. We don't accept that at all. We don't preach or teach baptismal regeneration nor presumptive regeneration. But as far as the meaning itself of baptism goes, it can apply just as well to children as to adults because all are sinners who need to be united to Christ and by God's grace may be united to Christ. Now again the argument is used, ah yes, but baptism is meant to be a demarcation line between the world and the church. So it is more than just about saying, well, they could be united to Christ. Well, it is a dividing line, so it is. We again affirm that our children are on the side of that line of belonging to the church. Otherwise you are saying that they are the world. And they may yet be unconverted, but according to the understanding of what the church is, they are part of the church of Christ in the earth. 
So in neither meaning or purpose is there any credible objection. But we want more than that. We want an actual positive warrant for doing something. We don't want to sort of argue by our own way of thinking how it all builds up. We want more than that. And we have different aspects of our warrant. First of all, think of the covenant of grace. That great plan and promise of God since the fall of man to enter into an agreement, a compact with sinners for their salvation. Now, baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Baptism seals that covenant. And Peter is referring to it here in Acts chapter 2, in our text from verse 38. The promise, uh, he repent and be baptized for the promises unto you and to your children. And we've did this before as well, but Peter is quoting from God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. He is quoting from what God had said to Abraham and that covenant promise that God is making with Abraham in Genesis 17 included Abraham's children. And they weren't even conceived yet. So they certainly can be considered included when they're born or when they're infants. Now in that same section in Genesis 17, where God has included by covenant promise Abraham and his children, the sign of the covenant is also given. The sign of the covenant of the Old Testament was circumcision. And that covenant sign was applied to Abraham. And it was to apply to his children. In their infancy, before they could make any profession of <clears throat> salvation by Jehovah God. And here is Peter in Acts 2 talking not about a different covenant, but the same covenant, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is not an exclusively New Testament thing, far from it, it is a post fall <clears throat> phenomenon. And so Peter urges the crowd to repent and be baptized. Why? On the base of a covenant promise. And that same reason that he urges upon them to repent and be baptized, he applies it to their children as well. The promise is to you and to your children. Children are always New and Old Testament included within the covenant of grace. And therefore the sign and seal of the covenant of grace you would expect also to have an application to the children. And so we find. We can also look at the example of Israel. Israelite children were children of the covenant and all males were circumcised at eight days. That was the norm. But there was an exception. The exception to that norm of circumcision at eight days was where the covenant of grace was only beginning to have an impact and touch people's lives. So with Abraham, he was an older man when this was instituted and given to him. And therefore, at whatever age he was at that point, an old man, he was to be circumcised. Or with proselytes who were brought in and who were embracing the God of Israel, they were to be circumcised. So where there's a, an interaction between the boundaries of the covenant and a sinner for the first time entering in, they are marked by the sign of the covenant of grace. And so within the covenant people of God, they were circumcision as adults, but that was the exception more ordinarily as children. And we have that pattern in the New Testament. We also notice that there was no change made in the New Testament to the who. 
the who of the sign of the covenant of grace. Think of the other great sacrament of the Old Testament Passover and the New Testament, the Lord's Supper. There are specific restrictions enforced in 1 Corinthians 11 in relation to the who of the Lord's Supper. Think of it, these Passover and circumcision, they applied to the full breadth of the people of God in the Old Testament. All who were circumcised would take the Passover without any exception. There was no kind of narrowing of it down. But in the New Testament, we do have a narrowing, in one sense, of those who are to take the Passover, or the Lord's Supper, compared to those who are to take the Passover. In the Old Testament, all who were circumcised took the Passover. In the New Testament, there is to be a self-examination. That a man examine himself and so let him come. There is to be a consideration of a worthily, worthy partaking, worthily partaking of the Lord's Supper. Discernment is required. Discerning the Lord's body. These are spiritual matters that cannot be performed by children that's why we don't have pedo communion you have some people who argue for pedo communion children should be at the lord's supper in their infancy even we disagree with that because scripture has imposed a greater restriction in that sense suitable to the spirituality of the lord's supper it is not a meal in the sense of for the body, but for the soul. And therefore, those who partake of it are, are ex- required to be spiritually discerning in the action. And that is very different with baptism. The children were included in the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. And there's nowhere in the New Testament that suggests anything different. And so we apply the same standards as applied in the Old to this introductory right, if you like, in within the terms of the covenant to the children. Where there is, If there was a New Testament equivalent of 1 Corinthians 11, for baptism, if there was a requirement that there must be a discernment of the water as a spirit, then we would restrict baptism only to those who are professing faith themselves. But there is not. There is a restriction for Lord's Supper. There has not been any restriction made for baptism. And therefore we do what people who have a whole Bible should do, we go back until we find where the limits are. And the limits are laid out for us in the Old Testament. And the covenant promise that Peter shows is still in application here in Acts 2. We have household baptisms in the New Testament. Now it doesn't explicitly say that there were children or infants there. But it is certainly doesn't explicitly say they weren't. And therefore we're happy to take it in the plain meaning of the word. In these large households where there were baptisms performed, that the inclusiveness of what Scripture is speaking of suggests that children were also baptized. But again, it is not about ability, but responsibility. You had to circumcise your children. And the jailer in Philippi would have been wrong not to have his household, those who, for whom he was responsible as the head of the home, baptized. And likewise, Cornelius. These household baptisms of the New Testament show that the head of the home in each case is taking his responsibility to his dependents seriously. It became their responsibility. To claim the promise as being to me 
and to my children. It was never about ability. The jailer couldn't convert anyone in his family. He didn't have the ability to do that. He didn't have any inherent ability to maintain even his own profession. But it was a duty asked of them by the Lord in the preaching of the gospel to them. Now all that just shows that some children can be within the covenant. It doesn't show at all that all are. And so we're asking thirdly, which children? And our third heading is, children of parents within the visible church. Now here, if you'll permit me, I'm going to turn a little bit to our confession of faith and standards. In the Confession of Faith and Baptism, it's chapter 28, it says in point four, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. It's a confession. The infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. And again, we have the same uh, in the way it is put in the larger catechism. Unto whom is baptism to be administered is one of the questions. Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church. And so strangers from the covenant of promise, till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him, but infants descended from parents, either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to him, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. And then finally, in the shorter catechism, question 95, the same question, to whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as members of the visible church are to be baptized. Now you'll notice a slight change in language between the larger catechism, the confession, and the shorter catechism. Larger catechism and confession speak of the infants descended from the parent of one parent who was professing faith in Christ. The shorter catechism speaks of those who are descended from one parent as a member of the visible church. Now if we take the shorter catechism, who are members of the visible church? How do you become a member of the visible church? We might we tend to think of members and adherents. But in the language of our Westminster standards, the members of the visible church are those who are themselves baptized. Baptism is the admission into the membership of the visible church. Uh, question 165, what is baptism in the larger catechism? It says that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing of, with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself, to be a sign of remission of sins and regeneration by his Spirit, a sign of adoption, a sign of resurrection unto everlasting life, whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. So those who are baptized are now considered members of the visible church and in the language of the larger catechism, they now have a professed engagement to be the Lord's. And so there is no contradiction between what the Shorter Academy says as members of the visible church 
and the larger catechism and the confession, those who are professing parents. They themselves are members of the visible church of Christ. Visible church, membership of the visible church of Christ was defined in the Old Testament by circumcision. That was the boundary. Outside of circumcision, you were not part of the church. Within circumcision, you were part of the church. The nation of Israel was set apart by this sacrament. To be born a Jew and live as a Jew was to enjoy all the privileges that came with being part of the visible church. It meant that your children then had this great privilege. They too were born within the scope of the covenant. They were children of the covenant. They had the right to the promises of the covenant. They had the right to circumcision themselves. Why? Not because of their parents' ability. Not because of their own ability. But because of a responsibility. Because they were born within the pale of the visible church. It was the responsibility of their parents to have them circumcised. Because God's promises and the covenant of grace extended to them. And the church was to reflect that in her practice. God required circumcision of all Israelites. Even wicked kings like Ahab and Manasseh. As well as good ones like David and Hezekiah. They were to have their children circumcised. It was a requirement. Now if a Jew who himself was circumcised, if he rejected his standing and he fled from his country and he refused to circumcise his own children, he had no right to the privileges. His being a Jew and circumcising his children was no proof of him being born again. Many Jews who circumcised their children were not born again. But by certain sins, he could lose his standing and be cut off from the people. And there is something for us to learn and improve on our practice here. There are those who are members of the church by baptism. They're baptized their infancy. They're considered members of the visible church. Not communicants, but members. They grow up. They marry. They have children. They are members of the visible church. It is their responsibility to bring their children to the Lord to seek baptism for them. Now, if we follow the analogies in the Old Testament, by open sin, by rejection of the church, by abandonment of it, they may lose their privileges as baptized members of the visible church. They are never unbaptized any more than a man who has gone away from the things of the Lord and Israel could become uncircumcised. It cannot happen. But they may lose their privileges. And therefore their children would be excluded from baptism if they have lost their privileges by abandoning the church themselves. There were laws governing conduct for members of the visible church of Christ in the Old Testament. And there ought to be something analogous to that today. Part of the privilege of being the visible church is that you're under God's special care, under God's special government. Baptized people are under Christ's government. And we need to be the ones who tell them these things and affirm to them their responsibilities and privileges. We should lay the burden of their baptism onto our children increasingly as they come of age. Because when they enter into full adulthood, the burden passes to them. It is no longer upon their parents. Though, of course, parents will continue to feel that burden. And ought to, but it is... In terms of absolute responsibility for it, it has passed on to the young adults. And we should be urging them to fulfill the thing that was signified with the substance of what was signified. 
You know, those who have been baptized have the world's greatest privilege in that they enjoy access to the means of grace. They hear offers of grace and mercy in the gospel. They are brought up under the sound of the gospel. But that brings a certain responsibility. All those who are baptized should cherish the status they have and guard it jealously. They should be afraid to lose that status. They should realize it could impact upon them and upon their children. And they may have to answer one day for doing so. But it is for the church. The church, by an ecclesiastical act, if you like, admits someone into the membership of the visible church by approving their request for baptism. Parents coming for their children or an adult themselves. The church are recognizing and uh, openly saying this person is part of the visible church of Christ. And we recognize it openly. The church have to admit someone. They cannot admit themselves to the visible church of Christ. It's an act of the church. On the same basis, they cannot put themselves out of it. It ought to be an act of the church. We have discipline for our communicant members. We have areas which of behavior are considered incompatible with their position as communicant members. You cannot opt out by default of your baptism if by 21 or 18 you're not yet converted. It is part of the duty of a Kirk session, minister and elders, to care for the souls of all the congregation, not just communicants. And that has a great impact upon those of you here who are elders, brethren. Your responsibility to those who have been baptized, whom you have admitted into the visible church of Christ as members of the church. How we have failed, friends, by treating members of the visible church of Christ as if they were common heathens. They are not. They are holy in the way the Bible sometimes uses that language. In Romans chapter 11, verse 16, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. Or 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. An unbelieving husband is sanctified, that is, he is made holy. An unbelieving wife is sanctified, and their children are holy. They are sanctified in the sense that they are separated to God. doesn't mean that they are indwelt of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible calls the children of parents in that situation holy. Now we long that our children and the children of the congregation, indeed the children who were once children of our congregation like this, now adults, even parents themselves, maybe even grandparents now, but who were in their own infancy baptized, that they might yet come to know not just that outward separation of baptism, that outward holiness and sanctifying, but the inner true holiness and separation to the cause of Christ of which baptism, their baptism, was a sign. Baptism is to be administered to the children who are of members of the visible church. Now, there's a whole area there of where the session ought to consider someone's life. Whether they have been 
able to maintain that connection with the church and still be considered part of the visible church, though not professing Christ. And therefore, their children are eligible. But if they themselves are still members of the visible church of Christ by the admission of the session in their own infancy, and if the session have taken such little care of them as never to tell them and warn them that their actions are leading them away from this and they may lose the privileges of their own children being baptized, then when they come for baptism, it is a responsibility of the session to be honest enough to say to them, we have failed to tell you what your responsibilities were as you became a young adult, as you grew up in our congregation, under our spiritual care. As a member of the visible church of Christ by virtue of your baptism, and yet you have lived in this way that seems to be a contradiction of it, and now you have come to see your own child baptized. There needs to be much more consistency and care for the souls of those who are baptized but not yet professing. It is not an easy thing to have that care of the full breadth of the visible church of Christ. So we baptize children because God's covenant of grace includes children. It did so in the Old Testament with Abraham. It does so in the New Testament because Peter uses the promise to Abraham as grounds for being baptized. And that privilege involves responsibilities. You are not free to live as any other person would. We might say they're under less regulations than the communicant member, certainly. Community member is expected to have spiritual discernment, an understanding of the body of Christ, self-examination in their life. Nevertheless, a baptized member is to be considered under the discipline of the session, the same as a communicant member. And if that is accepted and practiced. And maybe we will see the Lord's blessing upon our baptized children in a way that hitherto we have not. We as a church over generations now have seen the vast majority of our baptized children lost to the cause of Christ. God's promises are not weak. But have we failed in the application and practice relating to them? And I mean this in terms of the church and the session, more than directly to parents in this case. Parents have a responsibility to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And again, it comes down to not ability, but responsibility. <clears throat> Those who are members of the visible church of Christ have a responsibility for themselves, for their children, to be baptized. May God bless his word. Let us pray.